Welcome to the San Diego Psychological Association's podcast, Diving Into Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Carcel. This podcast has been developed with the intent to inform and educate the general public and providers and should not be relied upon for any other purpose. The content, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not those of the San Diego Psychological Association. On today's show, we will be speaking with eating disorder registered dietitian Susan Zelenak on various types of eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and orthorexia. We will also discuss a few warning signs to look out for and treatment options. Welcome, Susan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm actually excited to talk to you. Um, I actually, this is my area of uh, specialization, and I am so happy we are talking about it because there are so many misconceptions with eating disorders, and I think that just having a general discussion about it with specifics on the disorders and how to get help is so important. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be having this conversation because I feel like it's an area that a lot of people are not fully aware of. So the more we can talk about it, the better off for everyone. Absolutely. So I thought what we could do is just start with a general introduction on the types of eating disorders. So would you like to to bring that up? Yeah, absolutely. So the eating disorders um, that are classified in the DSM-5, which is like the different diagnosis criteria, there is going to be avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or known as ARFID. We have anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, other specified eating disorders, and then unspecified eating disorders. And then I know that you mentioned earlier orthorexia. That one is actually not classified in the DSM-5, but that one I feel like is just rampant in the area. So to kind of go in of like the differences between the ones, um, first I wanted to start with anorexia nervosa. And this is actually, there's a few different types. So we have anorexia restricting type where someone is eating under what they should actually be having for daily intake. And they are at like a low body weight and they're just having some different like body disturbances. And then we also have anorexia nervosa um, binge purge type. So that is going to be when someone is restricting Mm -hmm. and then maybe they're eating a larger amount of food than normal and they're doing some kind of compensatory behavior to get rid of those calories that they had. Correct. Um, So I think it's really interesting because I know when I first heard about eating disorders and thought of anorexia, I just thought of like the restricting type. So I think I really wanted to highlight that there are the two different kinds. Yes. And if I could add something to this, because this is usually missed a lot of times with um, the binge purge type, or even if we include bulimia, which we'll get to in a second, there is subjective and objective binging. Yes. So we want to make sure we address that. Do you want to address that? Absolutely. I think that's so important. So the difference between subjective and objective binges, when someone is having an objective binge, it's going to be a larger amount of food in a short period of time than what one would typically eat. And I know a lot of people always ask me, like, what does a larger amount of food mean? And that's really hard to say because I don't know if there is for sure like a caloric number on that, but it is going to be larger amount than what a like an intuitive eater would have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're feeling out of control. They're not able to stop. And right. so that's the objective. Subjective binging is going to be when someone's actually not having a larger amount of food. So it might be something that's more minimal. I've had people say like, oh, I binged on a cookie or I binged on an apple and peanut butter. And those are like very, you know, 
typical serving size for snacks, but they are having that out of control feeling. So it is still classified as a binge, even though it's not a larger amount of food. Right, right. Great. I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of times when I discuss that, it can get confusing. Um, And often with an objective binge, um, I hear a lot reported as pain. Like it gets to a point where there's physical hurt because you've eaten so much. Um, So that can be also a little bit of a measure. It's not exactly, um, it's not the same for everybody, but that is definitely something um, to kind of look out for. Yes. I I love that you bring that up because all of these things that we're going to talk about don't necessarily fit perfectly into these classified boxes. And there's a lot of blurred lines with eating disorders. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. So that definitely, so anorexia too, I want to point out because a lot of people have confusion about eating disorders and we'll get more into the categories here because I think it's important for anybody listening who wants help here and who wants to understand eating disorders. We're going to do our best to define it, but also to talk about it in practical terms. Um, But for anorexia, you know, it's good for people to understand, first of all, in general, eating disorders is approximately 9% of the population worldwide has eating disorders. And I think that's highly underrepresented. You know, the reason I say that is because you hear and see and and we're exposed to so much external stimuli that constantly talks about body, body, body. And, you know, there are people under report, right? So I think there's something to be said for that. But, you know, getting into kind of these specific categories, it's good for us to understand what they are and how how they relate to treatment and how they relate to helping. So um, I'm going to stop talking and let you continue because I jumped right in there, didn't I? So go No, I love that you pointed that out. And it's that 9% is absolutely, I believe, underrepresented as well. Yeah. (laughs) So the next one that I wanted to go over is going to be bulimia nervosa. So this is going to be recurrent episodes of binge eating and then um, some kind of compensatory behavior. So what I mean by compensatory behavior is they're doing something to get rid of those calories that they have in that they have eaten. So maybe they're doing self-induced purging, maybe self-induced, um, they're doing compensatory exercise. So just exercising excessive amount, trying to get rid of those calories. Maybe they're using laxatives, diuretics, diet pills, some kind of compensatory behavior. So for it to be classified as bulimia, it's going to be on average at least one time a week for three months. And I want to specify like those are going to be the DSM-5 category for us to actually be able to diagnose, but someone could be binging and purging and doing those kind of things and we would still classify it as binge eating. Or I'm sorry, bulimia. Correct, correct. (laughs) And then we have binge eating disorder. So this is going to be when someone is binging and they're not doing that compensatory behavior afterwards. So they're maybe just having a larger amount of food, eating more rapidly, feeling out of control, using food for like an emotional coping system, and they're not doing any kind of compensatory behaviors afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then there's eating disorders that don't fit perfectly into the anorexia, bulimia, binge eating boxes. So that's when we kind of get into the other specified eating disorders or unspecified eating disorders. So what this could look like is maybe someone has all of the characteristics of anorexia, but they don't fall into that low body weight category. So maybe they are just of like a normal body weight, maybe they're in a larger body, but they are, you know, either restricting or restricting and binging and purging. Um, And it could mean maybe someone does have like bulimia, but they don't fall into that perfect, you know, they are doing this on weekly for those three months. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go right ahead. No, I was going to bring up. um, So orthorexia is not a diagnostic um, 
disorder, right? So this isn't mm-hmm. something, but we've brought it up. It, it, you know, there's argument in the field, and I agree with this that it's basically anorexia. It's an, but you know, it has its own categorical significance in that it's come up more recently, and it's defined more as clean eating. Can you talk a little bit to that as well? Absolutely. I hear all the time like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm such a clean eater. I can't have anything. Or I hear, you know, it's a lifestyle choice. It's a behavior. So this is going to be someone who maybe only eats things that they consider to be clean, whole foods. So maybe they're only having whole grains, lean proteins, fruits, vegetables that are not having anything what they deemed as processed foods. And I always like to air quote processed food because I could go on for a whole hour talking about what a processed food is. But um, maybe they're only having, you know, organic fruits and vegetables. They're very particular of what they have. So there is a ton of different foods that they will not allow themselves to have. So then they could be restricting like whole food groups. Mm -hmm. They're very, you know, much I want to go exercise. I want to be as healthy as possible. I want to only get like certain amount of nutrients or calories in a day. Right. So it's definitely a type of like disordered eating. Yes, exactly. And it's become more popularized in recent um, years. And I think a lot of that we can uh, see from this external stimuli. Again, we're seeing advertisements for the beach body, these kind of things that just focuses on this as being kind of supplemental, but people can take it too far. So again, it, the the argument in the field is that it kind of falls, it, it falls into that anorexia um, category more than anything else. And that is technically the diagnostic criteria for looking at it from that perspective of restriction and basically um, highly restrictive food types. But I also want to say that eating disorders is transdiagnostic. What we mean by that is some symptoms overlap here, some symptoms overlap there. So for anyone listening, it's like, oh, I don't fit in that. I don't have it. Yeah, you still can. You know, it's not a, like we said earlier, like you pointed out, it's not a perfect picture. And and that falls for pretty much any diagnostic criteria. The reason I emphasize that is because if you're struggling and, you know, there's a concern, it's important to know that, you know, we're not highlighting this to fit in a box. We're highlighting this just to see how you're doing, right? And if you're falling into Absolutely. these categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important to point out. And then oftentimes when someone's going on the recovery journey, maybe some behaviors are, you know, minimizing and other things are popping up. So, you know, diagnosis can change throughout treatment. Absolutely. And speaking in that, I think it'd be good for us to help folks understand and learn what are some warning signs that loved ones could look for if they're seeing someone that they love kind of have some some of these concerns or some of these behaviors. Absolutely. And I want to really specify when I'm going over these warning signs. This is not an all-inclusive list because there are many, many different warning signs and every single person presents completely differently. So I just want to really keep that in mind of if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, well, I don't see any of that or like that doesn't happen to me. You know, there could be other things that are kind of coming up. I Mm -hmm. think one major one is going to be voicing any kind, kind of concerns about someone's body or their body weight, their body size, you know, really being unhappy with the way that they look physically. Another one that I really see is going to be like if they're starting to isolate, so they're not going to a lot of different functions out with their friends or their families that maybe involve food and they're just opting to stay home. If they're having all of their meals or anything like by themselves, so let's say like, you know, it's someone that lives at home and they're having a family dinner and they opt to just like have it in their room. Or maybe they're constantly running to the bathroom after every single meal. That could be a big warning sign that maybe they're engaging in some self-induced purging. 
Um, if you're noticing that they're, when you're eating with them, that they're kind of just like pushing their food around on their plate, or maybe taking very, very small bites, or maybe just eating a little bit. And they're saying like, oof, I'm really full after those couple of bites. Maybe I had a big meal earlier. And they're just kind of making excuses of why they're not really having all of their food. Um, there's also going to be like different food obsessions. Maybe someone is always watching cooking shows and reading recipes, but you never really see them actually in the kitchen or cooking. Um, maybe they're wearing oversized clothes, so they're trying to hide their body. Maybe they're wearing like really tight fitting clothes, so they're trying to promote their body. It's just, the list could go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. But I think what's really important to point out is if you're noticing someone Engaging in something different that is like the norm for them. So just really, if you've been friends with someone for a long time or a family member and you're like, huh, that's that's interesting. Like I'm noticing they're starting to behave differently. That could be like the first little, you know, red flag warning of maybe there's something else going on. Absolutely. And I also want to add something because for the general public, for anyone who's listening, who's like, what is an eating disorder? What does this look like? I want to be very broad and say that, you know, this is an interesting statistic. Less than 6% of people with eating disorders are medically diagnosed as underweight. Yes. That is very important. That means that the majority of people who are suffering from an eating disorder fall into a category of normal weight size or weight range. And we'll talk a little bit about what normal even means, right? So because because there's no such thing. Um, and actually, I, I think this is a good reference to the Hayes model um, yes. that a lot of even medical providers are unaware of. We're, we're starting to see uh, more training in this. And Hayes is an acronym for healthy at every size. And this is a specific training model that's very important for people to recognize that we all have different body types. We have you know, and it depends on it categorically. I, I like to do uh, the the three categorical, but even that's too, I think, limiting. But endomorph, mesomorph, and endomorph body types. But, you know, it's we cross, you know, different uh, paths with people all the time with different body types. And, you know, most people think eating disorders and they think, oh, she's skinny. She has an eating disorder. That is not categorically correct. And that, you know, whatever a healthy weight range is, it, a lot of people, that's where the majority of people with eating disorders fall. So I think that that's, uh, you know, important for us to point out. Yes, absolutely. I love that you bring that up. Before I even got into the eating disorder field or knew anything about them, I think I had this preconceived notion of what an eating disorder was. And I just thought of a very, very, you know, thin, emancipated person who was probably like in their mid-20s and just really struggling. And that's not, that's such a small, small percent of what eating disorders are. And I think that it's really, really important to note, like body size does not have anything to do with the eating disorder most of the time. Absolutely correct. Yeah. And that's, that's where for people who are looking for warning signs, um, it's not, you know, necessarily just losing weight. It's, it's definitely a variance mm -hmm. of different things. And I think I like what you said that notice seeing that the person is just not in their usual routine, yes. right? That they're not, there's something up, there's something wrong, and it usually has to do with food. You see, one of the things that we see a lot, and I think you, you agree with me, is anxiety over food, anxiety over social events that are, surround food. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. Most of the people that I work with do definitely struggle with some type of anxiety, and a lot of it has to do around the food or the social situation around food. Right. And one other statistic that I think is very important for you know loved ones and if you yourself anybody who's listening if you're struggling with this it's important that we get treatment involved sooner rather than later as soon as possible really because eating disorders
disorders is among the deadliest of mental illnesses. You know, and that's that's very important to to recognize how significant this is because, you know, vacillating in weight, um, doing these types of behaviors takes a toll on the body. So it's not just a mental health concern; it's a physical concern um, that's quite important that we uh, get treatment. So. Kind of jumping right into that, let's talk about the different treatment options for eating disorders. Absolutely. So there's a lot of different treatment options for eating disorders, and there's a lot of different companies that do it in all different areas. So it's really great to like research the different types of facilities to see what would resonate best with the person, but basically to like start with the different levels of care. So we have inpatient level of care, which will be at a hospital. This is going to be when someone needs to be medically stabilized. They're there for however long it takes for them to be medically stabilized. And then they go out to a treatment. So that stay is typically a little bit shorter than all of the other stays, but not necessarily. Um, a little slightly higher level of, or sorry, lower level of care than inpatient will be residential. So this is going to be when someone lives at a place and they are receiving 24-hour care. So they will sleep there. They usually, depending on the place, but will have three meals, three snacks. They rotate through different clinical and dietary groups. They have individual sessions with their therapist, with a dietitian. They are being monitored by medical professionals. There's typically a doctor or and a psychiatrist there who is able to, um, you know, prescribe them any medications to make sure all of their labs and everything are normal. And then once they're going through residential, then they will step to a lower level of care, which is called partial hospitalization. Um, that is referred to as PHP. So that level of care, depending on whatever facility you go to, depends on the hours. I've seen PHPs anywhere from like six hours a day to about 12 hours a day to where they're getting that same like meal and snack support and they're going through all of the different clinical and dietary groups and having, you know, individual sessions with their therapist and dietitian, but they're going home at night and they're able to see like what kind of stressors and triggers come up in those hours at their home and they bring it back to their team of like, hey, this is what happened when I went home and so we worked through all of that. Once they are progressing through PHP, they step down to a lower level of care, which is called intensive outpatient programming or IOP. Again, it depends on whatever facility and company you're with, but IOPs typically vary from like three to about five hours a day from anywhere from like three days a week to seven days a week. So that's a really great opportunity too, because you typically only have like one meal or maybe like a meal and snack with support. And then most of the time you were spent at home, you know, re-engaging in your normal, typical daily routine. And that way you can see how your eating disorder is presenting at that level of care. Mm -hmm. And what I really want to stress after people, you know, discharge from IOP, they go to their outpatient team. So this is going to be a fully outpatient team of, you know, you're going to work with your psychiatrist, you're going to work with a therapist, a dietitian, your primary care physician, and you're going to see them on whatever frequency they deem best. Usually it starts about like once a week and then you just progress through whatever you need. I really like to bring that up because when people discharge from treatment, they usually think like, yay, I'm done. I'm cured. And it's like, no, the the hard work continues. It just looks differently. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where you and I come in, I think. Um, yes, yeah, so you're you're working in outpatient right now, Susan? I work PHP and IOP oh, you levels are. of care. Oh, mm-hmm. wonderful. Okay. So yes. yeah, so I have that experience as well. So I actually um, was in PHP and IOP and then uh, came out to outpatient. So there you go, right? So, you know, we're saying a lot here with the types of treatment, and I'm sure you see this too. This can be really 
scary. Yes. For anyone who's experiencing these symptoms, I want to slow down for a second and just acknowledge how challenging this is and how hard it is to feel control um, when you're going through this. It, it's ironic because we talk about control with eating disorders a lot because that's conceptually a big part of what we hear as clinicians. And it's a lot of people think it's vanity. You know, the outside world, people who don't understand eating disorders think that this is a vanity issue. Mm-hmm. It's completely not a vanity issue. This has to do with control. A lot of times there is trauma in the history. And when I say trauma, I come back to micro trauma, macro trauma, micro trauma being anything that's verbal, emotional abuse, um, things that lead to perfectionism. A lot of people that we see feel have, have very low self-worth and think that they have to do more or they're not good enough. And it's it's trying to get control and that food becomes a method of having a voice. And I just think it's so important to get this information out to clinicians, to providers as well, because the misconception of eating disorders, it fascinates me. It, it really does that we still do not have a, a community understanding that this is not necessarily or focused on vanity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's not one thing that causes an eating disorder. It's a perfect, perfect storm of things. So I often hear like, you know, when family members are involved with someone's treatment, they're like, oh, I caused their eating disorder. And it's like, no, it's it's your genetically predisposed. Like you said, maybe they had some trauma. Maybe they have other co- occurring, you know, disorders, like it's, it's the perfect Mm -hmm. storm that causes an eating disorder. It's not one particular thing. Exactly. Yes. And there's studies also that show that we're looking into the biological, you know, is this also something that Mm -hmm. is connected? Um, We don't have sufficient statistics to support that at this time or sufficient data. Um, But we're looking into this, you know, the brain is a fascinating uh, organ, and it takes time for us to map this out. But (laughs) I do think um, it's important that we discuss this in a more broader context and recognition that this is all really tough. And it's all really scary. And for you know, people, loved ones who are listening or people who are experiencing this stuff, you know, personally, mm-hmm. um, this is what we're here to do. We're here to help. And that, you know, all as scary as, you know, PHP and all these treatments sound, you know, first and foremost, meeting with a therapist and getting an evaluation, right? Someone who specializes mm-hmm. in eating disorders like myself or my colleagues, um, like you, you know, getting someone who can say, okay, this is where you are right now based on what you're telling me, your behaviors, your actions, and, you know, just, you know, where you are symptoms wise. And this is what's appropriate and that we're, we'll guide you to that. We'll do our best to try to support and guide you into those levels of care wherever you fall. And that this isn't as scary as we perceive. The goal is to help reduce this feeling of being out of control and then back in control and this perfectionism or whatever is driving, whatever it is that's driving the eating disorder, that we're here to help. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all we want to do is to help. And I think it's really important. What I always stress to patients that, you know, step down to us or admitting to us from the community of like, I'm only here to help you facilitate and reach your goals. Your ideal lifestyle of what your recovery is, is very individualized. I can't tell you what your recovered life looks like, but I am here to help guide you and support you along the way. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I completely agree. I want to sidestep for a minute, um, you know, to bring in the multicultural component of this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really also significant and missed, eating disorders has often been categorized as a Caucasian, you mm-hmm. know, upper uh, socioeconomic problem. And that is just not the case, right? We we are seeing more a variance of people from different backgrounds and different gender, right, that are experiencing this uh, to to a higher level frequency. And, you know, one thing that I think is really important um, is the BIPOC, uh, Black, Mm -hmm. Indigenous, and People of Color category. They are diagnosed significantly less and they're uh, with eating disorders and they are most likely uh, not going to be asked about eating disorder behaviors by a medical provider. Mm-hmm. That is something that I think for any clinicians listening, we have to really make sure that we are noticing our own, you know, values, our own biases, because yeah, there's, uh, you know, being a Latina um, provider, I, I, this was something, you know, even I wanted to make sure that I was asking um, for everybody, right, that we ask everybody these questions because, um, you know, BIPOC and um, the Hispanic community, the Latinx community, uh, tends to be underdiagnosed with eating disorders. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's so, so important to definitely ask everybody. And then I think it's really important for us as providers to make sure that we're talking about, you know, what was your lifestyle? What was your upbringing like? You know, what type of foods did you typically have in your home? Let's make sure that we're making treatment, you know, that is as streamlined for you to make sure that it feels like we're not just pushing our agenda on you, but we're really bringing to you of like, how was your upbringing? What kind of foods and stuff do you want to work on and have like in your daily life? Absolutely. And I do want to discuss that. I also want to add, um, you know, I want to broaden that, uh, the multicultural. I mean, we're talking that this hits every category, you know, from Asian, uh, Latinx, LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. community, um, people with disabilities. Uh, one statistic that I thought was very interesting is we see a comorbid diagnostic crossover with people who have autism falling into eating, eating disorder being crossed over here with, with autism. So we do see that as well. Um, so that's something important that, you know, we can talk about a little bit. And also in the LGBTQ plus community, you know, that gay men actually statistically have a high prevalence to eating disorders. So that I'm just broadening this up to say we we want to make sure as clinicians, for any clinicians listening, that we're making sure that we're asking the questions to everyone and that we're assessing appropriately for everyone because eating disorders is that kind of hidden quiet. I sometimes feel that um, it's that hidden quiet behaviors that are just sitting in the background and it can hit anybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's really, really important to know that the eating disorder is there because it's serving a purpose for that person. Maybe because they never felt like they, you know, fit in or whatever the case may be. And so what we're here to do as providers is really to give them like more healthy coping skills as, as opposed to falling back into their eating disorder habits. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. There's a reality where this feels comforting for a lot of people who Mm -hmm. have eating disorders. It's one of the hardest things to let go. And that way it feels a little bit like addiction um, because it's, it's a maladaptive coping mechanism. And, you know, as providers, we get that. 
but there's other ways to cope that are much, much more healthy. And, and I think we can certainly uh, touch on that too. And actually kind of falling back into treatment and talking about culture, I think this might be a really good topic for us to talk about too. Um, how do you as a dietitian ensure that different culture, people from different cultural backgrounds have familiar foods that they grew up on and that they work through that in their cultural context? Absolutely. I think it starts with the day one and our like initial assessment of really talking to them of like, you know, what foods did you grow up on? What foods maybe did you have, you know, previously that you haven't had in a while? And what would you like to see here at the facility for like, you know, lunches, for snacks, for dinners to make sure that we're going to not just like, you know, to the Vons down the street and buying, you know, whatever food there. But I go to different grocery stores all the time in the area to make sure that I'm having, you know, a wide variety of cultural foods. And it's really great because a couple of times a week, we actually create our own meals that we all make together as a community. And it's like, hey, why don't you bring in like an old family recipe and let's like tweak this and let's like make it for everybody. And then we also watch a lot of different like cultural food documentaries. So we can kind of like bring that all into a space and show like, food is an amazing, amazing thing. And there's so many different, you know, varieties and cultures of it. And let's like expand our knowledge of it too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And um, you talk a little bit about um, people who fast for religious reasons. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of different religions will have different fasting practices, or maybe you're giving something up for like a specific time period. And I think it's really important to know, like, this is someone's culture and this is really important to them and to really work with them of like, you know, I know in like Muslim cultures, they fast for Ramadan. So if you can get an excuse for a medical condition, so really working with that person of like, hey, is it better to fast right now for Ramadan or is it better to actually get excused and exempt from it and then work towards, you know, being able to do that when you're in a more recovered space? So I think it's just really important to individualize it for that person and what their religion, what their beliefs, what their values are and to work with them as opposed to just saying, no, this is what you have to do. Right. And I'm glad you're bringing all this up because as an outpatient provider, and it's good that we talk about cyclical um, treatment when it comes to, or cycling with the behaviors when it comes to treatment, this is not an easy thing to to just get rid of. I want to be very clear that eating disorders has a, a lot of attachment to, you know, a person and that there is a lot of cycling much. Again, I compared a little bit personally, this is just my own idiosyncratic viewpoint, but I, I look at it like, addiction where, you know, there's recovery, but then there's lulls and then there's recovery and then there's relapse. And, and that's normal. I, I want to, whatever normal means again, I, that word just floats in my mind, but it's not <laughs> whatever that means, <laughs> but it does happen, right? This is, um, recovery is not a linear shot up and I'm cured. We, we do go through, you know, ebbs and flows and, as an outpatient clinician, um, I have had to refer to PHP. I have had clients where I've said, okay, we're struggling a little bit now, patient. You, you need a little bit more support than I could provide. And I think it's good that we talk about that you have options, you know, because one of the biggest things that it can be really scary to hear that from a provider and, you know, comforting people to let them know mm -hmm. we're going to take care of you and individualize your treatment right? Like that's really important. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that you say recovery is not linear. Like what I always tell everyone, we always think like, oh, we're making progress. We're making progress. Like this is great. We're just going to keep going on this path. But in reality, like you're going to have bad days. You're going to have bad moments. It's it's up, it's down, it's all around. And I often have people come to me and it's like, oh, you know, I completely like ruined my recovery because I had a bad day. I relapsed. I went, I binged or I purged or anything like that. And it's like, that's okay. Like you didn't ruin anything. It's a continual process. And like, let's talk about maybe what your trigger was for engaging in that behavior. And then that way we just grow upon it. And like next time that comes on, you maybe have different ways of coping with it. Right, exactly. And that's where a treatment facility um, can be very helpful because there's different modalities, different things that are focused on in a treatment center, um, which again, can address some of maybe even those comorbid um, diagnostic uh, behaviors and symptoms that are coming up that is really important to treat as well. Um, Like we said, you can have an eating disorder, but you may also have an undiagnosed autism spectrum disorder. And that's something that we want to make sure that we address and that you're it's more comprehensive in that way when it's a higher level of care. And that can be very beneficial. And then when, you know, a person does step out of that, that an outpatient at this point, we're supervising, right? Making sure your whole team is is involved, um, but that we're, you're doing this treatment on your own. You now know what to do. You now have the coping skills, but it doesn't mean that it's going to come easy. It doesn't mean that you're going to have it. It's going to flow. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be okay yet at that level. So that's, I just want to, you know, again, kind of rationalize this and uh, make people feel comfort that this is a process. It is a journey um, and it takes time. Is Yeah, it takes Absolutely, time. absolutely. And I really want to um, talk about too, oftentimes when someone's moving through the different levels of care and they're stepping down, they do relapse a little bit. When you go from residential to PHP level of care, there probably are going to be some struggles that Mm -hmm. come up because you're no longer in that 24-hour supervised care. You're now like half of your time is in treatment and then half of it is outside in the world. And then that happens too. I'm sure when people step down from IOP Mm -hmm. to outpatient, like it's okay if you do have a little bit of a degression and you need some more support. Like it's, it is a complete journey and it's a, it's it's a process. Yeah. And that's all okay. It is. I agree. And I wanted to ask you, you know, I get this question so much and I'm so curious for you as well. What do you say to people when they say, can I fully recover from an eating disorder? Can I fully recover from this? I am someone who 100%, 1000% knows that you can fully recover from an eating disorder. I know people in my personal life and professional life that have same 100% recovered from an eating disorder and it is possible. I agree. I agree. I've seen it as well. Um, it's it's a hard journey. It's an emotional journey. Um, you know, it's something that I encourage if you're listening and you're struggling with some of these symptoms that um, there are wonderful resources out there online. Um, be careful. Uh, I always tell people, be cautious. Uh, You want to look at professional organizations that study this, the American Psychiatric Association, the American (laughs) Psychological Association. Um, You know, uh, NIDA is a wonderful resource. Um, You know, that's an eating disorder specialization um, group. And uh, they often do a lot of support. Uh, They do their NIDA walks in different cities, uh, different times, um, or at the National NIDA Walk, which is great. Um, So these are great Uh resources and that you can look at this and know that, you know, this is not as uncommon. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, again, I think that number is underreported. We're seeing just a lot of people that feel 
um, these symptoms and just need that extra support so that we're here for them. But um, yeah, I wanted to ask, is there anything, Susan, that you would want to share with anyone listening, whether it's a clinician or, or the general audience, um, that you think would be important to address when it comes to your job and what you do with uh, your work and eating disorders? Yeah, absolutely. I think first, what I really want to say to anyone out there that's listening that maybe is struggling and thinking like, oh, well, I'm not like sick enough, or I'm not bad enough to where I like need help or need treatment. Like there is no such thing as like being sick enough to where you need to get that support and that treatment. If you are struggling with anything, please reach out to any like outpatient provider, therapist, dietitian who specializes in eating disorders, or you could do a quick Google search in your area of like eating disorder treatment facilities. You can call in and they will do a phone assessment with you and let you know like, hey, no, you're totally fine. You need outpatient. Here's a list of providers in the area. You can call or like, yes, we think that you might need residential PHP or IOP level of care and just know like you are absolutely worthy enough to get treatment and you deserve, you know, whatever life that you want. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as far as me, like, you know, working in the treatment facilities, I just really want to let you all know, like, this is a very, very safe space and that you can come in, you can let us know anything that you're struggling with. There is no judgments whatsoever. And every single person who works at a treatment facility, all we want to do is to help you. Absolutely. And that we also have, um, you know, trained for this. We've had to do our own work. (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of us get into this because, you know, we have uh, a passion for it and that uh, by by being in it and doing it, we're also taking on that stance of compassion and working through self-compassion to, to get to the end result. So, um, Susan, thank you so much uh, for being here. We really appreciate it. We'll put your information um, on the podcast uh, uh, in our little bio. And uh, thank you again. This has been a great chat. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed my time here. I really appreciate it. It was lovely talking to you all about everything. The information and advice offered is not intended to treat or diagnose and is not meant to replace any other professional consultation. If you'd like to know more about the San Diego Psychological Association, go to our website at sdpsych.org. That's S-D-P-S-Y-C-H dot org. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself and be well.